I just uh, want to welcome all of you. You're, you're with us if you're in live stream and maybe somebody watching this later. I've been excited about joining together with you today to look at the outcome of your faith. Now, this is, um, you can open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, and um, I've just been so grateful is the best word I can think of to the Lord for bringing alive uh, to me some things that I think are not only timely, but uh, for the life of our church, for every believer, uh, to freshly grasp what we might say here at this point would be the future aspect of your faith. Now, I have to tell you right off the bat, this is really underestimated in our Christian culture today. Now, most of this series that I'm going to recap in a moment, because we're going to do a little re, uh, kind of a little quick review of the heart of that 6th and 7th verse of 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you find that first for us? Let's be together in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, incidentally, somebody may wonder, as we move the new chairs in, the, the Bibles are not back in those racks, but you see a rack underneath those chairs? That's where those... Uh, those shared reading Bibles will be back, so sometimes we can share, as I often do, to open up those Bibles together. Uh, again, thanks for everybody that gave toward these new chairs and the seating. Uh, how you liking it so far? You all okay? Everybody settled in? Good. Uh, and I can't say enough of thanks. Wanted to repeat that again um, and didn't last week, but can't say enough of thanks to all of you guys and gals that uh, got involved in helping us in one way or another in that uh, quite unusual process of getting all of this lined up for the new seating for the sanctuary. But in your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, we, I left you really in the middle of a paragraph last week because we're, we're zeroing in on this, um, uh, we were zeroing in last week on the fifth of six themes about gold that we began in January 1st, and I'm going to recap that in a moment. But I want to jump first right back into the paragraph because with your Bible open in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, you see the term of being kept by the power of God. And I'd like to ask you to note, it, note that even just for your own Bible. Uh, you could have a translation that uses the word protected or guarded. And as I said last week, that word kept, K-E-P-T in the English, translates a Greek word that is best rendered in a military imagery of a garrison or a platoon of soldiers. Now, we might look, think of it this way. 1 Peter 1, 6 is telling you and me, first we saw in verse 3 and 4, it's, it's the new birth that makes these things real to us, and we couldn't be born again except for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But being born, given new birth into a new life, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what happens in verse 6 is we are kept, guarded, preserved, protected, encircled by the mighty love of God. We are kept by the power of God. I keep saying verse 6, it's actually verse 5, I'm sorry. But protected by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, 5, not verse 6. And that protection there, that military term of a protection, a garrison means that you're securely guarded by Almighty God in His grace, and it's we have to think of this protection in a couple of ways. It's not just protection from outside evil. It's also protection from one of the most hazardous things about living. How many of you know what that is? <laughs> it's our own attitudes. 
It's our own hearts. This preserving power of God in 1 Peter 1.5 that leads into the, to the section on trials in verse 6 is about God's grace securing you. Isn't security a wonderful thing if it's the right kind of security? Now, we know there's a true and false kind of security. Some people find security in something that's never, that's, that is surely going to fail them. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal just this week about the iPhone, and it's about a vulnerability that's not widely recognized about even the most advanced iPhones. Uh, a whole uh, article about um, very uh, frequent hacks that are happening. An example in New York City of, of, of a lady chief economist at some, uh, some big uh, investment firm walks into a restaurant, is leaving after a lunch, and uh, a thief has watched her put in her passcode. Passcode is different than the password in, in Apple. So the passcode was enough for a thief to visualize that, stole her phone. Within half an hour, the passcode had enabled the thief to reset the email and the return, the verification uh, identification information. And within 31 minutes, Wall Street Journal said she had $10,000 had gone from her from her regular checking account, and all of her access to her iPhone information was gone. And there's a whole piece about that. And it's, it's, what struck me was, in our culture today, when we think of security, peace, protection, you know, we, we obviously think of the, the physical things being protected physically, but probably what gets more people's attention than anything is something a little bit more in the daily, in the daily run of life, like intelligence and information. So, to know that you're secure in God, this great truth of 1 Peter 1.5 has relevant applications across the board that we can say we live in a world of vulnerability. If, if, a, if a skillful thief can, can unlock somebody's iPhone by getting one passcode in a, in a restaurant, uh, in a busy restaurant in New York City, then, then in many ways things that we tend to feel we're secure about are not as secure as we think. Let me put it a different way. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2, as we saw two weeks ago, that we are exiles in this world. We are, we are traveling in alien territory. And according to the text of 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, and Peter comes back to this theme about four times in this short epistle, our sojourning, our pilgrimaging, our alien identity from this culture means that a lot of things in life are not going to be naturally easy. And then look in your Bible at that sixth verse. That's why this being kept by the power of God leads us directly into verse 6 about the various kinds of trials that we go through. And when we come to that and begin to realize the, the kind of trials that we go through, this is why we should review the heart of what verse 6 and 7 tells us that leads us into the rest of this paragraph from verses 7 to 13. And today we're going we're gonna to put a, about half of our time focused on the future aspect of this because we want to see that ultimate gold, the ultimate gold in the Christian life is what verse 7 and verse 9 and verse 13 calls the outcome of your faith or Preparing us for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be visibly revealed to all. 
So in other words, there's a very important, the ultimate goal is the future fulfillment of all of God's promises, and it is related directly to the outcome of your faith. Now, that's vital to understand because as we review, the heart of verse 7 was that the testing of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, may be found, what does it say in your Bible, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Why do I need that future dimension? Dip back into verse 6. Because verse 6 says, for the, for the time being, some translations translate the heart of verse 6 like this, for a little while. Would you shout out a little while? Now, how many of you know when you said that, you didn't feel like it's a little while, right? When you're, when you're being squeezed, when you're being pressured, when you're, not, when you're just unhappy about something. How many of you sometimes just get up one day, you just don't feel that happy about things, right? Well, all of those are part of what with the older preachers used to call the vicissitudes of life. The vicissitudes, that's a word we don't hear much anymore. But the, that word vicissitudes is a good word because it, it describes sort of the ups and downs of life, the, the, the unpredictabilities of life, the unmanageable things of life, as well as the more severe kinds of adversity and stress, suffering. So when you look in the middle of verse 6 again, let's not leave verse 6 yet, because look at it, it says, in this, that is in this, being kept by the power of God, in this you greatly rejoice. Friends, please notice in 1 Peter 1, 6, it's the exact opposite of human instinct. It's the exact opposite of human instinct. Our instinct is not to rejoice in these times of difficulty. Our instinct is to complain. Our instinct is to, or if even not just complaining, sometimes our instinct is to try to solve the problem by human means. And what these texts are really telling us kind of together is that when you are born again and Christ lives in your heart and you've, you've got this new nature within you, there is a purifying process from God that is always proactive. We looked at it last week in light of the meaning of the Greek term in verse 7. The testing of their faith translates into English a Greek word, dokimadzo. And that word, me, is used in ancient times of testing in order to approve. And it holds within it the understanding that when God, nothing can touch your life, if you're a child of God, that God cannot use for the developing of more bold, more grounded, more resilient faith. So the first thing we tried to do last week is distinguish between temptation and testing. Temptation is the enemy's attempt, and we saw it's related to our own flesh. It's not all Satan. It's our, it's our flesh. It's our desires. And it is the combination of our, our desires sometimes twisted out of their best focus into a, an incorrect focus, and it's our desires leading us the wrong direction, and to the degree that Satan is involved in it, as Ephesians 4.27 says, give no place to the devil, to the degree that the devil is involved in stirring on temptation, instigating temptation, 
it's always aimed at tearing the believer down. It's a downward spiral. What's the difference in testing and temptation? Well, God can use temptations as well, of course. We know that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation taking you, but such is his common demand. But listen, God is faithful. Could you say it out with me? God is faithful. That means even in temptation, where the aim is to tear you down, your faithful Heavenly Father promises a way of escape and the grace to prevail. But when we go flip over to the testing side, we see that God himself, our Heavenly Father, lovingly and purposefully puts us in situations at times where we are tested. But we noted the second thing we wanted to note last week, this distinction so important, is that, and this is something that's so often missed, but it's, it's life-giving. Look in the heart of verse 7 and ask yourself the question, what is being tested? And I'll read it to you from the New American Standard, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishing, even though tested by fire, may be found unto to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this proactive testing here? It's not testing you, the person. It's testing your faith. Now, you might say, well, that's a distinction without a difference. No, it's really not. Because there are a lot of believers who say things like, well, I'm going through a hard time. I don't know what God's, God's just refining me. He's testing me. I don't know what God's trying to do in my life. But it's, it becomes very focused on their personality and themselves. And the goal of 1 Peter 1.7 is not about changing you, the person. It is about changing your faith. Why is that distinction important? Because you can lose your way if you see the testing by fire or the, um, the trial by fire, the struggle that is illustrated by fire. If you see that as somehow God is doing something to you, now think of it, what could happen? You, will, you can misunderstand the goal of the test. The, the term in 1 Peter 1.7 is saying that the testing God allows is a process of immense value, purifying your faith. Another reason we know this is true <laughs> is uh, one of the other original apostles, Peter's good, good buddy and colleague, the beloved John, who leaned on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper. And John puts it in, in a slightly different terms. It's saying the same thing in 1 John chapter 5 when he says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is born of God. Can't be born of God apart knowing from believing and confessing that Jesus, the Messiah, is the eternal Son of God. And by believing in his name, John says, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our personalities? No. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our mental attitude? No. Doesn't, get, doesn't cut the mustard, friends. John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our Faith, 
Why is that distinction so important? Because 1 Peter 1, 7, 1 John 5, 4, and Hebrews 11, verse 6, that God enables us to partake of a faith that is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that that faith comes to us by the grace of God, and we can embrace it, and we can rejoice in it, and yet within our earthen vessels, that faith is often very uh, embryonic, isn't it? It is being formed. It's being shaped in you. And, and we might put it this way, we might think of it this way, that when the Bible uses this illustration of the, of the purifying fire, it is, it is doing two things. One is it's showing us that we have a commonality with all former and present and even future believers who have discovered what it means to let God distinguish between your personality and your faith. One reason we're saying this is that somebody with a very take-charge personality might think they're making more gains with God because of their um, their natural personality. It's putting trust in the flesh. The Bible warns us over and over again, put no trust in the arm of the flesh. On the converse, somebody who tends to be down on himself or herself, maybe tends to go into spirals of, of, of self-analysis and introspection, can become, un, in an unhealthy and even neurotic way, they can become very destructive of themselves as if some, and in their brain, they put God in the mix. They say, what's God doing to me? Why did God let this happen to me? Oh, I know God's trying to do something in my life. He's trying to purify me. The fire is burning, and it's burning out the dross. And yet they're at the wrong, they've got their ladder leaned up against the wrong wall. God is not trying, God is not coming to you as a person and, and radically rearranging everything about you. No, he has chosen you. He has called you. The grace of God is in you. Even with your flaws and your mistakes, you are an earthen vessel of the Holy Spirit and the priceless treasure that is in you that must be purified by fire is not your personality. What is it? It's my faith. And that puts a whole different picture on the fiery trials. Job speaks of it. Interestingly, in chronological order, we could say that Job is the oldest written book of the canon of Scripture. It was most likely written in the days that are described in Genesis. So when Moses, of course, composed all of the Torah, Job most likely in written form already existed. And I think that's notable because here we have one of the very earliest believers of all time who we know goes through a terrible struggle. But think for a minute about what you know about Job. What was the huge mistake? What was the absolute, total mistake that his three so-called friends made? How many have ever needed, couldn't get to sleep one night and opened Job and thought, I'll read Job for a while, maybe I'll go to sleep, right? How many of you tried that? Well, because when you get past chap chapter 3, it starts into a long series of dialogues uh, from chapter, was it chapter 4 all the way to about chapter uh, 36 or 37, where, where three of Job's friends come to advise him. And, and what's notable in all those chapters in Job is that some of what they say ha is 
is true enough. It, they didn't, everything they said wasn't wrong, but they had their ladder leaned against the wrong wall. They, the, the friends were working on Job's personality. God was working on his faith. And the, and the friends said a lot of true things. In fact, some of the comments of the friends make good quotes out of context. They're, you know, they're aphorisms, they're, they're uh, truisms, they're maxims. There's not anything necessarily wrong with what they said. But their ladder was leaned against the wrong wall. What do I mean by that? They were aiming at trying to shape Job's personality. They were, the friends were working on their, their buddy Job. Well, Job, if you just had been more faithful... If you'd cried out to God in a different, if your heart was right, Job. And Job, you know, Job is like the spiritual punching bag. He's getting banged from all sides. Like Ernie Gruen, brother, we heard many years ago in ministry, said it on a board meeting at a controversial issue at a church in Kansas City. He said, I felt all, me and the board members felt like we had on Yankee shirts and rebel pants. We were going to get shot no matter what the decision was. And that's, what, that's about how Job feels. Like a guy with Yankee shirt and rebel pants, he, he's getting ripped from every side. And what's notable in the bulk of those chapters in the middle of Job, before you get to where God speaks out of the whirlwind, what's notable is they said a lot of true things, but they missed the mark. Because Almighty God was allowing his servant Job to be tested. Here's what Job said himself. If only I knew where to find God. <laughs> Here's Job in the midst of all this. If I go to the east, he's not there. Now, now think of it yourself. Aren't you glad, friends, that God put in the Bible certain things that you can read it and you can say, man, I, I've said something like that. How many of you could say, I've, I've felt that way. Maybe you didn't say it that way, but you felt it that way, didn't you? Come on, there's nobody here but us and the Lord. You could be honest. All right. He says, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. <laughs> when God is at work in the north, <laughs> I don't see him. <laughs> What's Job saying? Where are you, Lord? When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Oh, but this is so beautiful. He says, but he knows. Would you say those three words aloud with me? But he knows. Say it again. But he he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. In other words, what Job discovered then was the real meaning behind, um, I've already mentioned the Greek word, but it's notable that the Hebrew word, the Old Testament, behind that word is in Hebrew. That word is similar to the dokimazo of the New Testament in that it literally means the Hebrew word that is in the book of Job for being tested to the extremity. It means testing the limits to improve, to break through, to go the distance, and then some. <laughs> now that's where, you see, this future focus comes into view for your faith. Because you and I, my friends here at Liberty Church on this beautiful February sun-kissed morning, we have a race to run. We have a distance to go. Not only in our daily walk with God, but in loving the church, loving brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to be good news people in a bad news world, being on mission for God in wherever we are in our workplace, 
And many of you are in challenging workplace environments where maybe even the environment itself is not that congenial to all that you believe. Oh, God, God graciously says, you're going to go there and you are going to go the distance and then some. <laughs> because the distance that you and I are running is from difficulty to our destiny. And here's where the future focus of the passage of 1 Peter comes in. Now look at it in your own Bible in that, in that both that 7th and 13th verse. There's a phrase in both of those verses, 7 and 13, that we need to pair up here to really get the context of 1 Peter 1 and this entire paragraph. Well, you noted at the end of verse 7, and I'll read it from the New American Standard, that it results, your faith, say my faith, results in praise. My faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that seventh verse, the word revelation there, is the word apocalypse. It's the exact same word as the book of Revelation. And we're going to see in a moment why that's so relevant. Now zip down to verse 13. After talking about the glorious things Jesus did for us that are so awesome, the end of verse 12 says that even the angels in heaven have a yearning to scrutinize and look into these things. I've shared this before, but the, the, the um, last phrase of verse 12 about the angels is translated by J.B. Phillips in a wonderful paraphrased translation as the angels are standing on tiptoe wanting to look into these things. Let me put it a different way. The very process of purification of your faith that we've just talked about is something so glorious, so powerful, so purposeful that even angels long to know what the people in this sanctuary this morning are experiencing by God's grace. Angels, you may say, you know, I thought my life was kind of dull right now. I'm telling you, the angels are interested in what's going on in the kingdom of God, in the lives of average believers, born again, trusting Christ, growing in the Spirit, and God is doing something that is of eternal value to lead you from difficulty into your destiny. And 1 Peter 1.13 then brings us back to that future focus. And it says, therefore, gird up your minds for action. The Greek uses a word picture there that is much like what I've put on the screen to illustrate it, because in those days, the, when a, many in their more formal attire even men would be wearing long flowing robes in certain circumstances. And when, it, when you needed to run, just like any ladies know, if you've got a long dress on, ankle length, you need to run suddenly, you'd have to kind of gather up the bottom of the skirt. Same would be true for a robe. And so even a part of military training was in the Roman culture, was training people how to move from a formal stance, maybe somewhat formal dress, to move quickly into action, gather up the, the, the skirt of that robe, pull it up uh, above the knees, and make a way to run, and learn how to do it quickly. And we noted in two prior messages here about how Peter reaches back into the story of the Exodus, and here's another allusion. 
uh, where he draws from that imagery because his text in verse 18 talks about Christ being the Passover lamb, shedding his blood for us in a parallel way. Uh, when God gave the Passover command, he said, not only eat the Passover, not only follow the prescription, but what did he say in Exodus 12? He said, eat this Passover in haste. While you're feasting on that which symbolizes the mighty delivering power of God, in which every element at that table has symbolic significance to remind us of the bitter suffering in Egypt and the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the provision of God for our future. But Exodus 12 says, don't eat it casually. Don't eat it kind of laid back, sort of just relaxed. No, he said, Passover calls for an urgent preparation to move. And so Peter draws from that allusion a kind of a historical uh, connection with the Passover in verse 13 and says, prepare your minds for action like a soldier or anyone with a long flowing robe would be preparing to pull those up. And the expression translated in English in the older Bibles was gird up the loins of your mind. And the modern translations then render that phrase more understandable to our culture. Prepare your mind for action. But one reason the old expression is interesting is that, is that it, it pictures a process of mental preparation that we all have to understand. We sometimes have to stop our thought processes in a wrong direction and sort of like gathering up the skirt, you might say gathering the hymn, gathering up the loose material, let's say. We've got to choose. And here's what I find remarkable about 1 Peter 1.13 is that this is a call to action because the Lord knows you can change your mind. Woo, somebody's going to say, Woo, I went to Liberty Church today and good grief. That guy said something I can't accept. I can change my mind. <laughs> yes, you can. Say, yes, I can. Well, not because of your own power. But what are we seeing in the text? We're seeing from verse 6 on, from verse 5 on, we're kept by the power of God. God has given you the power to do this, to change your mind, change your mental focus, change what you're aiming at. I call this <laughs> the best of all test results. You're going through a test. We saw last week a test inside the test is can I praise God when I'm in the test not only get to the end of the test and say, thank God he brought me through that. That's good. How many of you know that's good? I'll tell you what's better. What's better is learning to praise God when you're still in the tunnel of the test. When you're still in that dark tunnel and you're going through the test and you say, I don't see, I can't see around this corner. I can't see light at the end of this tunnel. But hallelujah, I am kept by the power of God unto salvation. And that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So three times in this paragraph, a focus of our faith is on the future ultimate gold of God. When in the future, you'll get the outcome of your faith. You'll get the salvation of your soul. You'll get this wonderful fulfillment of what Paul described here in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, and I'll ask you to read this one aloud with me, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, this is the text of 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with glorious joy. You're filled with glorious joy. And then this one as well. And I draw this paraphrase from 1 Corinthians 13 because I think it's so helpful to realize. Friends, I used to hear people criticize the, old, the older traditions, the older saints for always being focused on heaven. They would say, well, if he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You know what I think is there are a lot of believers that are so earthly, earthly minded now that they're losing their focus on their faith. So you see an earth orientation, staying earth bound, is as contrary to your faith as being too, too dismissive of the present tense. In God's kingdom, it's always past, present, and future, and God has a future plan. And we should not diminish the value of the glory of heaven. And, and here, this is a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. And again, read this one aloud. This is a good reading together as we have this time to think about this. We don't yet see things clearly. I love this. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Now, can you see, friends, what 1 Peter chapter 1 is telling us is you can prepare your mind for action because God has something glorious for you. Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 21, and just a tiny glimpse, a foretaste of that, is the description of the city of the New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven to fulfill the eternal plan that he had for the redemption of his people. Now, what's notable here is that when you think of that glorious scene that is unimaginable to us, God has pulled the veil back in Revelation 21 to give a glimpse of the glory that is to come. Too many believers today think this has nothing to do with my checkbook. <laughs> this has nothing to do with my bank account. This has nothing to do with my family, my daily life, my struggles, my questions. Oh, but it does. Because everything in the scripture, we see it in 1 Peter 1, 7. Three times in this paragraph that's our primary text, Peter is saying your faith will grow as you understand the ultimate gold is what God has in your future. In Revelation 21, 11, the Bible tells us that this glorious city that's coming down from God out of heaven, that's going to encapsulate and fulfill the plan for a new heaven and a new earth. This is after millions upon millions have been in heaven for, for hundreds of thousands of years. So heaven is, heaven is real now. We'll see this in a moment. But this is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate consummation of God's plan for the heavenly Jerusalem to come to this very planet and reshape what sin and evil have destroyed. And the angel that shows John this in Revelation 21, 15 says, he had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, in Revelation 21, there's several things that I call superlatives where God reveals something about the eternal kingdom being far more glorious than anything you can imagine on earth, and yet he chooses to use earth illustrations, 
but then he magnifies them in a remarkable way. So that uh, the four-square city, 1,500 miles square, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles in all directions, it's a giant, like a giant cube. If you set it on the United States of America, on a map of the United States, it would reach from Boston to about Denver, Colorado, and encompass most of the, all of the Midwest and all of the Southeast. This is this huge uh, cube, the glorious city. And another element is the gold. The gold is described as, as not the kind of opaque gold. The most purified gold on earth would, be, would still be opaque. But this is a gold so resplendent with the splendor of the glory of God, it's clear as glass. It's solid gold, but it's clear as glass. Well, I wonder, well, why would that be? Well, because the gold itself in this text is reflecting back that this city is the ultimate in what your heart and my heart are longing for, and that is the total purity of the reign of God over all humanity and all creation. And the gold itself reflects this principle stated in verse 11. If you go back in your text in Revelation 21, where he says, the brilliance of that city shone with the glory of God. Why did we need a physical example of gold? Why, why the gold? Well, the, the, most, the, the role of gold throughout the Bible reflects the value of that which is beyond what can be valued. When the Queen of Sheba brought 120 talents of gold in her absolute amazement at the, at the glory of Solomon's kingdom, the 120 talents of gold the Queen of Sheba brought in, concurrent, in current dollars and cents would, would be approximately 246 million uh, uh, for $246 million, so that a quarter of a billion dollar gift, <laughs> if you translated it out, in the Queen of Sheba. And, and gold is reflected throughout Bible stories to reflect that. It reflects something of inestimable value. But the reason that it does is also important in Revelation 21, and, because, and that is because the gold itself serves the same purpose as the light, the resplendent light that fills all of this eternal dwelling place when verse 23 of Revelation 21 says, the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Hallelujah! When you hear Peter's exhortation, when you're in the middle of testing, when you feel like your faith is going through a fiery trial, Peter is saying, not only can you be sure that God has a proactive, positive purpose, that's why you praise him in the middle of the trial, but also because you know that what's shaping your faith as you grow is leading to the ultimate goal, gold, the outcome of your faith, where you see it all clearly, and you know our God reigns. Our God reigns, say it with me, our God reigns. I think a good way to summarize it is like this, that what Revelation 21 does, Revelation 21 takes natural earthly elements like gold and jasper 
and the walls made of jasper. And, the, and, and think of the 12 city gates of the New Jerusalem, made of each gate made of a single pearl. Somebody said, wouldn't you love to see the size of that oyster? You know, a single pearl in all of the 12 gates of the heavenly city. And it, and it describes it as if the, the, the pearl itself is larger than the, the original gate because it had to encompass the, the, the post and the, the doorpost and the gates. A huge pearl at every gate reminding us, reminding us again, an earthly example that just as a pearl is the product of pain and the tiny infinitesimal internals of an oyster in which that substance is secreted and turns a, an irritating grain of sand into a lustrous and priceless gem. God, in all of eternity, has gates to his city that show a pearl as the entrance to the place of his enormous reign. Our God reigns. So he takes these earthly elements, and here's what he does. Gold, jasper, pearls. He elevates these elements. The most excellent things on earth, God elevates them to express earth eternity's ultimate glory. Now here's the takeaway for today. If we understand that there is a real eternity, if we understand there is a real glistening city of gold awaiting us, no, no, not just some place of habitation, but it's the fulfillment of four aspects of the future promise for the believer, the, the uh, outcome of your faith. I want you to leave with this quick outline, the outcome of your faith. Why? Because, again, this is a neglected truth in our Christian culture today. We're not hearing about the future. We are too present tense bound. Sure, there's a balance. Sure, we don't deny that, um, that, the, that the most important things in the Christian life are what we responding to the Lordship of Jesus. But you cannot respond to the Lordship of Jesus if you don't have that future vision, if you don't understand it. There are four things that I call ultimate gold, and I'm going to hit them quickly. They're not understood well today because I'm going to be coming back to a couple of these after Easter in a couple of messages. One is that our heavenly home, it's an abiding place. Um, yesterday when we went to the Celebration of Life service for a wonderful, wonderful woman, Barb Stiegler, uh, reminded again, when that, when that sweet woman who's blessed thousands of people in, in Maryland with her love for Christ, when she passed from this life into the next, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediate entrance into the eternal dwelling of Almighty God. Jesus said, my Father's house has many dwellings, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again so that all of you may be with me. But that eternal dwelling place is immediate. 2 Corinthians 5 describes it like our physical body is like a tent, and it's a tent, you know, uh, Becky and I have camped a lot in our lives, so you know, you think you get your tent, you get your tent out, you set it up, you have your tent. When you get ready to go home, you fold the whole tent up, you put it away, you put it in the trunk or in, a, in the attic or somewhere, and that tent is just a, a, a collapsed version of the little temporary house you were at at the campground. Well, God sees the body as valuable and of eternal value because he's promised a glorified body, but he says in this life, it serves as a temporary tent. And when the real you goes into your heavenly home, that tent is 
fold it up, and it is laid tenderly in God's green earth. And we know that this heavenly home itself is part of the animating power that Peter is talking about when he says, you will give praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus. One little boy was on a skyscraper about 75 stories high in New York City with his dad on the first time he'd ever been in one of these kinds of elevators. And as he watched the lights go by, go by when a floor 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, he looked up at his dad and he says, Dad, God know we're coming. <laughs> and the beautiful message of the gospel is God knows you're coming. And he's got a place prepared for you. Secondly, a citizenship in the eternal realm impacts us today because Hebrews 11.16 says God is preparing that city for us. And we got just a little tiny glimpse of the city here in this message. But God's preparing that city. And that future city is why Hebrews 11.16 says believers that follow in the footsteps of Abraham and Sarah, they can persevere in tough times because they know this is not the continuing city we live in. No, there's a city to come. And Philippians 3.20 tells us we're already citizens of that city. We don't have to wait for the city. You're already a citizen. You carry in your heart a passport of God's heaven. And it's in you, and it affects the way you live. The appearing of Jesus Christ is what Peter talks about in 1 Timothy, what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.13, when he says that the day will come when Jesus makes his full splendor known. The full glory of the omnipotent Savior will be known when he appears. And finally, then, what we saw in Revelation is a vivid portrayal of Peter's promise that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Bottom line is, God doesn't junk his creation. When NASA puts satellites into outer space in the 1970s, many of them now are called, they call it, astronomical trash. Because some of those satellites have run out of their capacity technologically. And so there's things in the atmosphere that are technically junk, but left there by NASA. Some brighter plans to retrieve those one day. But God never does that. God never winds something up. God doesn't put something in the universe and then it's just abandoned later. No, and God didn't create an earth to be abandoned to the evil and the wickedness that we often see and feel is consuming the planet. No, the true God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who raised him from the dead and gave us new birth by his resurrection, he's planned a new heaven and a new earth. Does it matter to you today? You bet it does because you're already a citizen of that heavenly kingdom. Let's pray together and I ask that the Lord will put a, a future focus in our faith with fresh dynamic impact in all of our lives. Lord, thank you that we see these future elements in Peter's explanation of how we can go through fiery trials and let our faith be purified reminds us that we don't live in an earthbound nor a present tense bound life. If we're in Christ, if we're in the kingdom, we're already receiving spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ in realms that we can't see. And Lord, how much more as we embrace the promise that he that has this hope in him keeps his heart yearning 
for that kingdom, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because we know in your magnificent grace that all these things will be added unto us. I pray also as the team begins to lead us in singing, you could be here today, you heard some of this, and you might say, wow, I know that, I know that, that these things are true, but I, I want in my own heart to make a solid and strong and 100% commitment to Jesus, my Lord and Savior. It's possible to be in a church house, to be in a, an auditorium, to be in a great crusade or, or an arena and hearing the gospel preached, and yet not having had made that personal decision yourself. Nothing is more important in these critical hours of our lives than that we say yes to the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly. And the wonderful thing is, it's very simple to do. We love to have the opportunity one-on-one -on -one to pray with someone about how to make sure, make the assurance of the outcome of your faith something you'll never question. And in fact, you'll know this is the victory that overcomes the world. Yes, even my faith. Amen.